Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you here, all worshiping together. For those of us worshiping and joining us virtually, just want to thank you. My name is Will, one of the pastors here at New Life Prez, and it's my joy and honor to be able to preach God's Word. And for those of us who are in here in person, uh, it's good to see you. Um, yeah, it's been a long time, and so it's good to hear uh, the voices come together in the confession, uh, to see the kids uh, run around a bit, and uh, physically to be able to preach to a bunch of uh, souls and bodies and people in our church family. And so uh, we pray that things continue to improve in this way, and, uh, and that we can worship the God together. Uh, our passage today comes from uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33. Uh, we are continuing along in our series in real marriage, and as we look at today's passage, we'll consider the, the role and the responsibilities and the unique challenges of what it means to be a gospel-centered wife. And so let me read God's word for us here, starting with verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband." And this is God's word for us today. Well, as we consider the role of wives, there are unique challenges and unique responsibilities that wives face, unique temptations, just like husbands do. But still, like husbands, everything that a wife is called to do, according to the Bible, is all encapsulated with the broader commandment to love your neighbor and to love your husband. In other words, whatever the specific expressions of husband duties and wife duties, they're all expressions of the one commandment to love. And so I want to consider with you here, what are the unique challenges, responsibilities of the wife as an expression of the greatest commandment to love your neighbor and your husband? And this is a challenging sermon. It could be a little bit sensitive. I could step on some of your toes, but... Pray that the Spirit may open our hearts up to at least consider what the Bible may have to say, and I want to do this under three points. One, I want to focus once again on different roles between husband and wife, diversity of roles. Secondly, I want to address some common misunderstandings of husband and wife roles, and particularly, what does it mean to be submissive? And then thirdly, we'll consider what is the beauty of gospel submission, something that fundamentally all people are called to do, not just wives, but every Christian and follower. So we'll look at diversity of roles. Secondly, we'll look at and address a couple of misunderstandings. And then thirdly, we'll look at the beauty of submission. So let's look at this together, roles, diversity of roles between husband and wife. I said this before, but one of the challenges that I come to recognize in my own marriage, but also in marriage counseling, 
is that there's a tendency for the husband and wife to fall into two different traps. One, they fall into the trap of mimicry, repetition. In other words, they try to recreate their own parents' marriage and try to bring it into their marriage. Or secondly, it's assimilation in which they try to assimilate and to learn about what marriage is according to culture. And both are legitimate. We can understand both. But what the Bible says is that you're not called to mimic and recreate your parents' marriage into your own. And you're not called to assimilate your marriage and to redefine it according to culture. But really, it's going to be the gospel and Jesus and the church that defines your marriage because that is the profound truth. Now, when you read these verses, there seems to be at least different roles, at least some nuance, some sort of unique emphases between the husband and wife. Although, generally speaking, there's large overlap with unique emphases. So that's how you could think about it, large overlap between husband and wife, but unique emphases. So in other words, when you read these verses, you notice that actually wives are called to submit to the husband and wives are called to respect their husband, but husbands are called to love and die for their wives. It's sort of interesting. It says, husbands, die, love your wives. Wives, submit and respect your husbands. It seems to be a little bit of a different emphasis. Now, if you read verses 26 to 27, it even brings us out a little bit more in diversity of roles. It says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with a word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And he's saying, essentially, Jesus in the church is the model for husband and wife. So husbands like Jesus are supposed to die and love their wives, to better their wives, to lead her to perfection in Jesus. Now, here's the point that I'm trying to make. Just because husbands are supposed to die for their wives for their, her betterment, just because husbands are supposed to love their wives, and just because wives are supposed to respect their husbands and wives are supposed to submit, it doesn't mean that the wife is not supposed to love her husband. And it doesn't mean that the husband is not supposed to respect his wife. Of course you are. We're supposed to do this just by being in virtue of being a Christian. You love everyone. You respect your husband and wife. You want the husband and wife to mutually inform one another for their holiness. But there's still an emphasis here. Husbands, in some ways, are called to lead and to die and to serve their wives for her preferences. And they're called to love. And the wives are called to, in some gospel-centric way, to respect. But you're supposed to do that across the board, not just between husband and wife, but there's just an emphasis. Even if you look at the first marriage in the history of mankind, back in Genesis 1 to 3, you'll see that there's a large overlap between man and woman, Adam and Eve, but there seems to be at least a nuanced emphasis. Adam and Eve. Adam was a person who was the namer. If you remember your Old Testament story, God created all the animals and said, Adam, you name all the animals. So he was the one that named everyone. He identified them. But then for Eve, he says, you're going to be the helper. And friends, let's think about that for a moment, because when we, in our day and age, think helper, we think of an assistant. We think somebody is going to be the manager, and you build a house, and then you have the assistant that brings the coffee, or the assistant that brings the hammer and the nails. That's not what the Bible means when it talks about helper. Helper is much deeper and richer. In fact, the word helper in the Old Testament is used six, 16 out of 19 times in reference to God. So when it says that Eve has her role as helper, it's not an inferior role. It's not a supportive role. It's an essential role. 
It's just diversity of roles. It's not Eve's inferiority. It's her essential contribution actually to highlight Adam's inadequacy. Does that make sense? Now, you think about it in daily life. Kids need homework. Mom, Dad, I need help with my math homework. Mom, Dad, I need help with this project. What do they mean there? They don't need help. They're saying, I can't do it because Mom and Dad have something essential that the child doesn't. It happens in all of life. There's so many things I can't do. I can't fix things around the house. And I say, I need help fixing the sink. I don't mean I'm going to do it and someone pass me the wrench. I'm saying I don't have the ability and the resources, the skill set to do it. So in the same way, when that word helper identifies Eve's essential contribution, it's not saying that it's a secondary assistant. It's saying that Adam by himself is inadequate and Eve has essential gifts and resources that are necessary in order for human flourishing to happen. But the point is that there's a large overlap with unique emphasis. Adam was a namer. Eve was a helper. Adam had his role, but he was inadequate by himself. It was not good for, God, for Adam to be alone, so he made Eve the life giver with her essential gifts, her essential contribution to the flourishing of life. They are equal in that sense, friends, but yet there's still diversity of roles. Even if you know the story of the Genesis account, you'll notice actually that after Adam messings up and he ate of the fruit, that God comes onto the scene and he curses Adam and Eve, but he curses them differently. Now, don't read too much into this, but it shows that there may be at least an emphasis. So Adam, in verses 17 to 18 of Genesis 3, it says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. In other words, when they messed up and Adam sinned, God comes onto the scene and says, I'm going to curse your work. And then what does it do for Eve in verse 16? Right before that, it says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And Eve gets cursed as well, but she gets cursed relationally as a mother, but also as a wife. Now, it's not to read too much into this and say that women are supposed to stay at home and only men are supposed to work. That would be drawing the conclusion too deeply. But it does show, at least in the original design of marriage, there is a diversity of roles of equal importance and essential contribution between husband and wife. And that's important to know because when we begin to look at the role of wives in submission, realize that it comes out of a gospel equality, a gospel flourishing, a gospel design not inequality, not the way the culture brings all this baggage into the words like helper and submission. It, we don't want to let the culture dictate marriage between husband and wife, but let the word of God. And in the design of God, there is essential contribution, yet there is diversity between husband and wife. One commentator makes this insightful point before we go on to the second point. He notes that in the pre-industrial age, sort of an agrarian culture, you didn't see the husband go out to make his money and the wife stay at home with the children. In the pre-industrial age, the husband and wife both produced goods together. They worked together. And whatever job was a family job, they either farmed together, they were tailors together, they were shoemakers together, they ran the business together, they both produced the goods and worked, and they both raised children in the pre-industrial age. And then later on in the industrial age, as things began to revolutionize a bit, for the first time, for some reason, somebody had to get up and go to work and sometimes that was going to be the husband to go off to work and make money. And for a brief period of time, then women were staying home for child rearing and didn't produce goods. 
But when you go into Scripture, you know, you'll see the Bible. People often say the Bible is so traditional about marriage. And it is traditional, but the challenge is, what is that tradition? Husbands go out to work, and why stay at home with the kids? Well, that's the industrial age, but even before that, there's a decade and a season in which both husband and wife went out together. So what is the tradition according to culture? Well, the point is, is that the tradition is what the Bible says in Jesus and the church. It's not to be too narrowly defined in what husband and wife are supposed to do because there's large overlap but essential contribution and nuanced emphasis. So it's radically different, friends. It's radically refreshing and freeing. It's not supposed to be patriarchal or masochistic. It's supposed to give you a God-designed biblical model of marriage, diversity of roles between husband and wife out of their equal makeup, but yet their diversity of contributions and their roles. And we'll talk about what that may mean. Secondly, let's consider this. What are some misunderstandings of submission? And this is something that we need to listen to carefully because if we understand what the Bible, misunderstand what the Bible says, you have a breeding ground of abuse. And many a times we read about the wife who's in an abusive relationship because there's a misunderstanding in spiritual abuse or verses such as the ones that I've just read. So let me just break this down for us. One, I want you to look at these verses and realize that there's a relationship between husband and wife, one flesh, head and body, there's an organic unity. So there's diversity of parts, but at the same time, they move together. They communicate and talk together. That's the implicit application of this metaphor. Head and body, but they move together. And a lot of times, submission becomes distorted and marriages break down because they misunderstand that metaphor of head and body, and they move in different ways that break down this relationship. In fact, marriages can break down in one of three ways that help distort the understanding of biblical submission in head and body. One way that marriages tend to move is that they move towards each other, or they move away from each other, or they move against each other. And I mean by, what I mean by this is that you can move towards each other, not in a gospel-centric way. You move towards each other because the wife or husband is a people-pleaser. So wives do everything the husband wants because their understanding of submission is actually domination. Wives have to heed every command. They can't say anything. They just do everything that the husband says in the name of biblical headship. They do everything the husband says because they fear his wrath, his anger, his abuse, and they desperately crave, in a codependent relationship, his acceptance. So they move towards one another. Another way submission breaks down unbiblically is because they move away from each other. Out of fear, out of comfort, out of autonomy, they drive each other away because this idea of submission has been so broken and brutal that they can't have difficult conversations, they can't commute, communicate, and so they move away. Or the third way is that they move against each other in this fight for power because submission seems to be a power play. So they fight, they criticize, they move against each other with power and anger. Husbands can be cruel tyrants, demanding, controlling. Wives can be critical and controlling as well. And everything is about who gets the last word and wins the battle. But that's not biblical submission. That's not head and body. Head and body is this. It's not about moving towards one another and people-pleasing, nor moving away from one another in, in, in autonomy and comfort. It's not moving against one another in power. It's moving together with each other, pursuing their God-given vision of pursuing Christ. Now, what does this have to do with misunderstanding submission? Well, if you understand, misunderstand submission, there are a couple of things that we can consider. 
about misunderstanding submission. If you look at verse 28, it says this, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. So they don't move toward each other in people-pleasing, away or against, but they move together. Someone once said, Christ demonstrates leadership in the church through service, a service that is marked by self-sacrifice, in dying and rising again to rescue the church from the church's own sin. And in turn, the church responds to this in faith to Jesus' leadership. They move together in that perspective. So what are some misunderstandings of submission? Well, first, submission doesn't mean there's no correction. Some wives feel, or husbands in fact feel, that wives can't correct their husbands because it's improper, it's a sign of disrespect. Never correct your husband because that's a lack of submission. That's an unbiblical notion. Correction is a basic responsibility of love. To love your neighbor is actually to correct them in gentleness, patience, kindness, and endurance. And you certainly do more for your husband, not less than you do for your neighbor. So biblical submission means that you should lovingly correct your husband. You should speak up. Secondly, some people think that submission means silence and non-communication. They think if you submit, you can never speak up. But again, that's an abuse. That's an unbiblical notion. Love, biblically speaking, speaks. It shouts. It talks. It exhorts. It corrects. It says no to evil. It's an advocate for justice. Love actually is very vocal. It has a lot of expressions. The Bible never advocates fearful, mousy sort of silence. It may advocate out of love, holding your voice for now until you could deal with it later, but that's different from saying, if you want to submit, never talk back to me, never speak. Now, a couple other things about the misunderstanding of submission. It has nothing to do with intelligence. In fact, oftentimes, wives are much more intelligent. It has nothing to do with giftedness. Again, in fact, most women oftentimes are more gifted than the men. It's not about talent. It's not about dignity. They are essentially equal in their makeup, imaging forth God's image, husband and wife. It's not about dignity. Male and female are both equally the image of God and both have equal respect, honor, and dignity in God's biblical design. Submit does carry a lot of baggage in our culture, but biblical submission is not degradation, not tyranny, not inferiority, certainly not oppression. Paul also is not saying that all women need to submit in this way to all men. It's very specific. It's wives encourage the leadership of their husbands. Submission also doesn't imply the wife is not capable, as I've said, that she cannot have her own thoughts and her own opinions and disagree, cannot offer her own perspective, it doesn't mean that women and wives cannot have a superior opinion, which is oftentimes the case, or superior intelligence or giftedness. Those are all misunderstandings of submission and the way that husband and wife move. But last but not least, let's consider then what is biblical submission? What does it look like? And this is challenging, I'll be honest. I think it's always weird for a male and a husband to come up and talk about what the wife is supposed to do, so I'm trying to let the voice of God speak. I did send my notes on this particular section to a handful of wives and women, saying, here are my notes for this Sunday. Please let me know what works and what doesn't work. Please let me know what your thoughts are. And so I thought it would be good to get a handful of sisters, at least their perspective on what I'm trying to say here in the Bible. But the role of wives in submission... You know, I said last week in husbands, if there's one word that stands out, stands out as a husband's role, it's love. There, I believe, seven times in the passage. 
Well, wives is a little bit difficult because if there's one word that stands out for the role of wives, it's submit, like we already addressed. But Paul in this passage addresses women first, and he says in verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, at the heart of that word submission is this. It's not about an, a hierarchy. It's about a design and order. In other words, if God is infinite wisdom, infinite love, and he creates this world, this world reflects his wisdom and his love, his purpose and design. Same way with marriage. If God is infinite wisdom, infinite perfection, infinite love, that means the way he designed marriage is wisdom, love, and perfection. There's an order there. And the way he wants to structure this order is in this idea of authority and submission. Broadly speaking, the Lord does not want wives here to do anything that he calls every Christian, even husbands, to do, which is to submit. That's why we keep reading this sentence, this partial sentence, in every past three weeks in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, who is he talking about in verse 21? He's talking about everyone. Everyone has to submit to Jesus. Everyone has the authority structures that you need to submit to. Children submit to the parents. Employees submit to their bosses. Citizens we submit to the police authority and the firemen as well as to the government's officials and the civil realm. We all, this world is built on, built on an idea of submission because the authority structure is supposed to, in an ideal world, reflect the authority of God. In the same way that it is with marriage. It expresses itself in different ways, in different contexts. But here, Paul is talking about how does this beautiful expression of encouraging leadership express itself with wives and husbands. But submission, friends, ultimately is about ordering and arranging your life in God's design and wisdom. It's humble recognition of a design given by God in his order, in his wisdom, and his love. It's a position of honor because your submission for all of us is a humble acknowledgement that God is the Lord of life and we all submit to his purpose and his plan. And so, yeah, everyone is called to submit. And here in this particular relationship, wives are called to encourage the leadership of their husbands to lead them to Jesus, and that she would encourage and gently build her husband up in that particular role. Now, here's the question, friends. What does that really mean, and what does it look like? Well, I don't really know. It's not really formulaic. But at least it means this. Based on verse 33, it says, Let the wife see that she respects her husband. Respects her husband. That word there in the Greek, did you, that word there, respect, is actually the word for fear. Now, it doesn't mean don't be scared of your husband. It means that in some ways you talk and you think and you move in such a way that you respect or you have a certain level of awe or reverence for your husband. Not to worship him in some people-pleasing, idolatrous way, but to say God is the one who placed our marriage in this order and I should respect him in the same way that husbands are called to die for their wives. In other words, friends, submission essentially means that you acknowledge and joyfully encourage the spiritual leadership of your husband. And there are three particular ways, according to Winston Smith, a counselor at CCF, and it's just his suggestions. It's just his application. So just listen to it, chew it up, mull over it. Maybe you apply it, maybe you don't. He's trying to bring the gospel down to the everyday level. How do you do this? Well, he says you could do it in your thoughts. You could do it in your words and you could do it in your actions. So how do you have gospel-centric submission? Well, it is to respect your husband, but how do you do this in your thoughts, your words, in your actions? 
Now, in other words, when you think about your, your thinking, your words, it's about how you think about your husband even before you interact with your husband in the world. You know, your heart motives, your thinking, your thoughts, the first thoughts that come to your mind, you know, are they generally ones of love? Are they about respect? Are they about how can I build my husband up in a way that he is not a leader as he should be? Remember, Eve had essential resources and gift sets that was needed for flourishing of humanity. She was an essential contributor to Adam to highlight not Eve's inferiority, but Adam's essential inadequacy. So what do you think about your husband? Maybe smarter than your husband, more gifted. Your husband may not be the best leader. He may have a lot of, a lot of sins, a lot of inadequacies, but you can sit there all day and just pinpoint all these problems with your husband. We all have them. But the problem and the challenge is, is that the gospel says in grace, yeah, your husband is imperfect. He's not Jesus. He's going to grow to be like Jesus, but he's not the Savior. He's broken. He's impatient. He's lazy. He doesn't lead. He doesn't pray. I'm sure there's a long list. And so what do you do in that moment in your heart before you even react and relate? Well, maybe you think about your thoughts and pray, how can I build him up slowly but surely? How can I encourage his leadership? How can I even gently and lovingly, other-centeredly, maybe with words, correct him, encourage him in your thoughts? Secondly, it's about what you say to your husband, both in public and in private. And friends, by the way, this goes both ways. You know, the husbands are to do this as well. But here we're talking about the wives today. How are you supposed to do this? Well, in your conversations and the way that you talk about your, your husband in public and private, what you say about him to other people. Are your words disrespect or are they respect? In other words, if you disrespect your husband with your words in front of your kids and in public, why would you ever think that your children and people in public would ever respect your husband? If you're always saying, my husband's such a dud, he can't do this, he's so frustrating, he's so difficult. And yes, I know that husbands, you need to do this as well for your wives. They, oh, you can't go publicly with your friends. My wife, she's such a nag, she doesn't understand, she's so critical, she doesn't do anything. Now, of course you can't do that on both sides, but one way that you could respect and encourage leadership of your husband is to think, are my gospel words, both publicly and privately, do they respect my husband? Do they, do they paint the grace of Jesus onto the sin of my husband so that he could be built up. Because if your words are disrespectful, how can your family, your kids, and the people around you respect your husband? And last but not least, it is also your actions. And this is very diverse. And by actions, I'm not talking about service and cleaning or anything like that. I'm just talking about, do you know your husband? as a fellow sinner, as a disciple of Jesus. It doesn't even have to be about gender. It is part of our identity, but it's not. It's just, do you know your husband? What makes him happy? What makes him angry? What makes him frustrated? Do you know your husband? Do you know the way that he likes to talk? Do you know the way and when and timing of when he wants to talk? How do you begin to express in your body language and your facial expression a way that encourages your husband to pursue Jesus Christ? Because they always say, according to sociologists, that 70 to 90% of communication is nonverbal. Do you know how that works and how do you relate and talk and how do your interactions and your attentiveness encourage the leadership of your husband? That's a general principle, but we're called to work that out in each individual marriage. So how do you have gospel submission? Well, how do you respect your husband in verse 33? Through your thoughts, your words, and your actions. 
How do you relate? How do you move in this physical world? Now, you're thinking that's pretty tough, sisters, wives, but here I'm about to make it a little bit harder. You're thinking that sounds pretty difficult, but when am I supposed to be doing this sort of respecting and this sort of gospel-centric submission? When am I supposed to do this? Well, verse 24 tells us when you're supposed to do this. It says this, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything (laughs) to their husbands. Now, it's not a totalitarian regime. It's saying that in some ways, every sphere of your life, you want to submit to the Lord to encourage your husband to lead you in this way, in everything. Do you remember what Jesus did for the church? He saves her, forms her, unites her, gives her gifts, matures her. Jesus is her head to whom the church grows. Church submits everything to Jesus, and in that model, you get a picture of what our marriage is supposed to be. That is what a wife may be called to do with her husband. It doesn't mean you can't have your own opinion or even disagree. It means you can have a willful, joyful disposition to encourage the spiritual leadership of your husband in everything. I can imagine, I get it. I think I get it a little bit. I shouldn't say I get it fully. I know. Like sometimes husbands are just. They're just not the spiritual leader. The wives tend to be the spiritual leader, the ones who want to do family worship, the one who reads the Bible more, the one who thinks about the gospel and applies that to everyday life, the one who wants to serve the church, the one who wants to commit more money to tithes and offerings and missions. Sometimes, and oftentimes, it's actually spearheaded by the wife, which is perfectly fine, but the problem is, is that the husband seems to be living a life that is vacant of the gospel. What do I do? Well, it's a challenging circumstance, but even in the midst of that challenge, in your own wisdom, by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, you pray and you think, in the small ways, how can I encourage my husband to grow as a Christian and as a leader? One of the biggest and most fundamental hopes of this truth is in verse 22, as we come to a close. It says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, Paul does this even when it comes to bosses and employees. Employees, you have a bad boss. Well, how are you supposed to be a witness as an employee when your boss is so abusive? We realize that when you obey your boss, you obey the Lord. The picture that Paul is trying to paint is this, friends, that as you submit your husband, as challenging as that is, the truth and the power in which you're able to do this, the heart transformation for us to do this is to realize that behind your husband, you imagine by faith, is Jesus In the same way that husbands are supposed to die for our wives, but sometimes that could be challenging too, we do this because behind our wives is Jesus. Children, how are you supposed to listen to your parents when they don't understand? Because behind mom and dad, when they're telling you to get off the iPad, can't hang out with your friends, go do your homework, stop acting up, eat your vegetables. Children, how are you supposed to listen to your parents when they're so hard and you don't feel like they understand? Well, as best as you can, children you realize that behind mom and dad stands Jesus Christ. And that's why if you're a boss, you treat your employees with equitable practices, if not gracious practices, but behind your employees is Jesus. Employees, you treat your boss with respect and try your best to be a witness, even if it's a broken system to some degree, some degree, because behind your boss stands Jesus. And that's what verse 22 says, As to the Lord, submit to your husband. 
is not ultimately a submission to your husband. He's just a broken sinner like we all are, but it's to Jesus Christ. That's why verse 21 says, everyone submits to Jesus Christ. It is to the Lord, your bridegroom, your perfect husband, the husband that your human husband is not yet. And you submit to Christ for this. He gives you the power, the perspective, the joy, the hope in those moments that seem almost hopeless because nothing changes in your marriage and you're still arguing, you're still bickering, and your husband doesn't seem to be changing, and you're about to give up, and you throw the hat and throw the towel in. And what do you do? You realize that as you try to encourage the leadership of your husband, you have hope. You could do it because behind your husband, you do it as to the Lord who has redeemed you and loved you. Jesus Christ who understands you and guides you and saves you and feeds you. And those are the challenges, friends. No one said marriage is supposed to be easy. He said from the beginning, marriage is really glorious, but it's also gloriously hard. No one said it's going to be easy, but it is glorious because it is a model of what Jesus has done for the church. And you have in him your power, your worth, your grace, in order to continue to grow. Friends, let's take a moment and please pray with me. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the grace that we received in your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray also just for, not just for the husband and wives in marriages, but also those who are dating, those who are single, those who are younger in college or in youth group or even new life kids. We pray, Lord, that in each in our own ways, we'd understand this glorious picture, this most intimate of relationships called marriage, and help us to grow into a deeper devotion and love to Jesus Christ, who is our husband, our bridegroom, as we are his bride. We thank you for this time, Lord, and we pray all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen.